The scripture reading for today will be uh, out of Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. If you could turn there and stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 24, verses 36 through 43, read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said these and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As was read, we will continue our study through the book of Luke tonight. Um, as you can see, we are almost done. Um, we will have only two more weeks after tonight in the book of Luke, and then we will conclude it, and then we will start a new book, hopefully very soon, if not the beginning of the year. But coming to the end of a book, there are a couple dangers um, that I want to make sure that we do not fall into. There are many popular shows and movies that, and books that people love, um, let's say like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or The Office, and what makes them so great is the depth to them is that the characters, the storyline, the plot, there's a great depth to it. However, it would be a sin if I was to tell you to start with The Office in Season 6, Episode 15. Or if you just picked up the fourth book of Harry Potter and started reading. Sure, you might be able to follow along and understand what's happening, but you're missing out on a lot that has already taken place. There's much that builds upon each character and development and the plot line as it thickens, that makes it greater for you to appreciate. And so as we come to the end of Luke, uh, that we have been in for almost three years, there has been so much that has happened that we need to make sure that we not forget about, that we have in our mind as we are reading through the text that we have for tonight. If you have been um, in the hermeneutics class, a fun word that we have learned is called a pericope. And it's not just a fun word to say, but it has a meaning to it, and that it is a Um, train of thought or it's a small unit that is being communicated in the biblical text and so tonight we have our pericope of verses 36 to 43 but again this pericope falls into a greater context of a passage of a chapter of the entire book of entire themes of books and so all this is to be in the backdrop of our mind as we come to um, what we have to read for tonight. And so to do that, I would kind of like to backtrack a little bit um, through the book of Luke and to bring forth something that I think would be really important to know to understand where we are and why Jesus responds the way he does and why the disciples react the way they do. And so specifically, I'd like to highlight the disciples and their journey they have been on to get to where we are tonight. Um, so if you think about it, uh, it's common this day for if someone is to go and sit under a rabbi, they would start that process around the ages of like 13 to 15. And so we aren't quite sure how old the disciples are when they're called by Christ to follow them, but we know they're probably around that. They're probably in their late teens, if not their early 20s. They are young men. 
And so they are called, as we see throughout Luke and all the Gospels, they are called out of their professions to come and to follow Christ. And so for three years, we know that's how long Jesus' ministry uh, lasts from Galilee to his crucifixion. These disciples live with Jesus. They live with one another. They leave their professions. They leave their hometowns, and they go and they travel with Christ, sitting under him as their teacher, as their rabbi, and learning from him. They see him teach to thousands of people. They watch a multitude of people from different cultures and language come to him to hear what he has to say. They watch him perform miracles of uh, walking on water, of turning bread into thousands to feed many, and they themselves even participate in these miracles, that they cast out demons, they also walk on water, they do, they're experiencing these miracles as well. But then they're also even then sent out. Christ sends them out two by two to go to the neighboring cities and to proclaim the message that they have been sitting under, that they have been learning about, that they themselves have been living by. And so it's been a um, fun three years. You know, you, I, you probably think back to like your college years of like three or four years in college spent with a probably core group of people learning a core message uh, that you, a degree that you graduated with. And it's a, a very impactful formative years that then impact you the rest of your life. And so for these disciples um, to follow Christ, to adhere to Christ, to be Proclaiming his message has been influential. Now, let's sit then they're following Jesus towards the end of these three years. And they come into Jerusalem. And everyone's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're recognizing that this person is not just any ordinary rabbi. There's something special about him. There's something godlike within him. But all this takes a turn for the disciples. That even though Jesus prophesies about his death, it takes them by surprise. And you can imagine how much more of a surprise it takes them when they are with Jesus praying in a garden. And next thing you know, one of the 12 who they have done life with every day for the past three years is the very one who betrays him, who comes up and shows the Roman guards who to arrest, who to accuse, who to throw in prison. And so for the disciples, for these young men, that is a real shock and awe, if you will. And it's then at that moment that the Gospels tell us that the disciples abandon Christ, that they, they leave him, that they, they flee, that they, they run from him. And we, we aren't quite sure what they did during the process of Jesus' public trial, when he is openly mocked, when there is openly deceitful and wicked lies told against him. But we can imagine, as we kind of see Peter, that they probably witnessed it in some ways. They were probably in the back skirts of the, of the crowd, watching Jesus being falsely accused, probably had watched Jesus from distance as he carried his cross up the hill of Calvary, and probably even saw him on the cross being crucified. And so, again, for these disciples, this is, a, this is really, again, just shock and awe as to what has just happened, all that has conspired, this three years of Christ to now being crucified. And so where we come to tonight is the disciples still hidden away, still in fear from what the Gospels tell us, not only the Jews, they are fearful of the Jews, and that they, what the Jews did to Christ, they're also rightfully assuming they're fearful that the Jews will also do to them. But it's more than that as well. Because, again, for our passage tonight, it falls into uh, a greater, not just the book, but this chapter as well. So even though this is our um, third week in chapter 24, Actually, all of chapter 24 is retailing one specific day. So when we read in verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, we are still on this first day. 
And we come to the very end of it. So the first week we talked about these, these holy women who went to the tomb to behold and to see Christ, but not only to find him, but to have an angel. And the angel tells them, he is not here, he, is, he has risen, he is resurrected. And what do the women do? It says that early in the morning they go to the eleven and they tell them all they have seen. And last week we entailed the road to Emmaus, these two specific disciples who are walking later in the day. And Jesus appears to them and he tells them all about how the Old Testament is pointing to him and communicates and reveals how he is the fulfillment of all these things. And it says in verse 29 that these two disciples, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went to stay with them. So we have now come towards the end of the day and our passage tonight picks up right at the end of this. And we know in the other gospels that on this day, Jesus appeared to multiple other people as well. But the, uh, these two disciples also, just like the women, follow suit. They go to the eleven to communicate to them what they have seen, what has happened. And the question that we kind of ask is like, what are the disciples doing? Why are they still hidden away? You, you would think that upon hearing that Christ is alive or his spirit is being seen, they would do something about it. They wouldn't stay an entire day upon multiple witnesses coming to them and just be hidden away. Um, growing up, uh, I was perhaps maybe a little bit of a troublemaker. My mother might be able to testify. But every now and then, um, my mother would hit me with, uh, just you wait till your father gets home. Now, I used to get away from my father to get home because he would wrestle with us, me and my brothers, and we'd rough house or go play the football, stuff I couldn't do with my mother. But when my mother would say, oh, wait till your father gets home because I disobeyed or I broke something or I misbehaved, what was a, oh, I can't wait for dad to get home, turned into a, oh, I don't want dad to get home. It, it changed very drastically. And even though it was six hours till the workday was over until dad got home, th there was real gloom and doom until then. I, I dreaded until that came. Because even though I might be apologize, my mom's in a better mood, there, there still is the punishment that's going to come from my father when he does get home. And so likewise, for these disciples... They have not forgotten that they have abandoned Christ. They, they know, and the, the weight of that, and the, and the guilt and shame of forsaking Christ in His greatest time of need, still is fresh on their minds. That was just days before. So to hear that Christ is out walking around is not a relief. It is a punishment. They think this, this again, even though they don't have a grasp of resurrection, they think a, a spirit of the one who we have Oh, uh, we have committed our lives to the past three years and we forsaken and abandoned is now walking around. It's like, surely he will come and haunt us. Surely he will come and uh, extract vengeance on us. He will punish us for our disobedience after he did so much for us for th three years, right? And so it, it kind of fills in why the disciples, even though for an entire day, all these witnesses are coming to him, they are fearful. They are in dread. They, have, they feel the weight of their guilt and their shame for their dis disobedience. However, that is not the case. And so as we pick up in our passage tonight, verse 36 says, As they were talking about these things, that is the resurrection, people witnessing Christ's resurre resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. What is consistently seen throughout this book is that there are many people who claim to be followers of God 
who claim to be Israelites, who serve Yahweh, to uh, give their lives to Him, to serve Christ and to commit themselves to Him, to be obedient to their every word. And it doesn't take usually a page later, if not the exact same page, for them to fall short of that, to disobey their God, to go against Him, and to fall into sin. But yet, time and time again, as we have seen all throughout every single book of this, of this every single page of this book, is that our God is a merciful one. Our God is a gracious one who does not deal with us as we deserve. For abandonment is a serious thing. Like, if think about your work. If you were just to get up and leave midday through busy season, not tell anyone, not come back for multiple weeks, you probably won't have a job waiting for you. If you just abandon it, there, there's a real problem with that. If you are married and you just walk out and move away, never to talk to your family again, it's like there's divorce on table. Your family might never accept you back. If you are at war and you abandon your post, you abandon your platoon, there's jail time, if not the death penalty for that. Like abandonment is a serious thing that is, has um, great consequences to it. And so that's all that the disciples are expecting for Christ to come and treat them with, with wrath and vengeance and anger is rightfully assumed. But that is not the character of the God that we worship. Our God is merciful. It is His glory to show mercy. It is to His zeal to, know, to let His people know that He is forgiven. He is far more willing to forgive man than man is to be forgiven. As B.B. Warfield says, the sin of man is from an infinite, is from a finite being. Our sin is only comes from us and as a, we are human and that we are bound by our nature. But the mercy of God flows from an infinite one, one that has no end, who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. Thus, when he shows mercy, it's not for, as if another human being is showing mercy. It's as if God is showing mercy. And thus, the the mercy of God and the, the oceans of His mercy are, are so far great in contrast to the sin that we possess. And thus, how God cares about and deals with His people is not as they deserve. And likewise, um, Christian, it's the same for you and I. When we, by the guilt and shame of our own disobedience, for we are no different than the disciples, just as they have abandoned Christ, just as they have backslid away out of faith we also do the same do we not how many times have we swore that never again we will commit the sin how many times have we said that today it will come to an end and yet again and again we fall back into it again and again we disobey the god that we claim to love but yet just as disciples we are not met with punishment but we are met with peace be to you that our god labors for us to know that we are forgiven in and through him and thus, we can be, yeah, we can expect the same towards us. Unfortunately, though, disobedience to the disciples is not the only thing that we share with them. Another thing that we share with them is doubt. Um, if we pick up back in verse 37, it says, But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In light of the fall, in light of our human nature, we doubt. And we don't just, it's not just religion. We, we just doubt with most things in life. And oftentimes, um, the, the more it seems to be too good to be true, the more we doubt it. 
whether it's a job offer and the money is being offered or a potential spouse that we're pursuing and thinking that they are better than what we're expecting, we just tend to doubt. We live in a very skeptical age as well. And so, um, Christian, we are see that for Christ, doubts are not an issue to him. Doubts, although are, are not ideal, although are a result of a fallen world, and in a perfect world there would be no doubts, Christ does not, it's not overwhelming or, or something that Christ can't handle. As we see here, Christ meets his disciples in their doubts by offering himself. He invites his disciples to come forth and to feel his body, to see that he is real, to touch the, his hands and his feet where the holes would have been, to see that it's truly him who is resurrected. And likewise, Christian, um, for us, doubts can be, they're, they're a double-edged sword, if you will. Um, many of us know people who may at one point claim to be a Christian, and their doubts led them away from the Lord. Their doubts led them to pursue other religions or other philosophical thoughts or other answers to soothe and answer to their doubts. And what they're met with is, is not Christ, and thus they eventually fall away. But if your doubt, it should be a motivator for you to cast yourself upon Christ. Because Christ here makes it abundantly clear and known that he will meet you in your doubts. Doubts are good so far as they lead us and drive us to Christ, who is able to handle our doubts, who has no problem knowing our nature. He knows our frame. Um, faith is a gift of the Lord. Some people have great faith and don't struggle with doubt. Some people doubt, will doubt every day the rest of their lives. Nonetheless, whatever your frame is, God knows your struggles. And just as here, as he knows his disciples and knows how they doubt and how they're struggling with it, he offers himself. He says, you know, touch me, feel me. And likewise, Christ is doing the same work for us now and today. Now, obviously, it's like, well, how is that going on? How, how's that happening? Because we don't have Christ walking the earth anymore. As we'll see uh, in here next week, the ascension, Christ has left the earth and now sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty on his heavenly throne. And so thus he can no longer do what he did here in this passage in the sense of let his disciples touch him. We can't touch Christ. Um, so what, what do we do with that? Um, God has not left us empty-handed. God has not forsaken or abandoned us in any way, shape, or form, but rather has sufficiently given us all that we need to not doubt. And he does this through two, two means, two ways. The first one is the Spirit. Christ, later in John, says that it is better, it is better for me to go, to leave, to ascend, so that the Helper may come. So Christ not walking earth today is not plan B. It, was not, it wasn't like Christ needs to leave, then plan B is to send the Holy Spirit. No, plan A all along was for the Holy Spirit to come. And Christ, talking about the Holy Spirit, refers to the Spirit as the Helper. And it's like, well, it's kind of a little bit self-explanatory. The, the Spirit is to be the Helper for believers to not only illuminate, to, to understand truth, but also, also to empower us to live and abide in that truth. And so we have the Spirit, but we also have what goes hand-in-hand hand with the Spirit, and that is the Word of God, the, the Bible, the Scripture. Scripture is God's revealed words, revealed truth that is written down for us to give us wisdom, to give us discernment, to give us guidance. And with the Spirit and with the Word working hand in hand, 
This accomplishes the same thing as if Christ was standing here before us and says, here, feel me, touch me. You have faith in what you see and what you touch and what you behold now. The Spirit and the Word now work to accomplish this in a way that is sufficient. Maybe not ideal, because I, I would probably say when our faith becomes sight on the other side of glory, that would probably be ideal. Thus, That's why it's heaven. That's why it's perfect. However, though, on the, in the meantime, again, this is not plan B. This is always plan A, is that the Spirit would be at work within the hearts of believers, working alongside the Word to illuminate truth, to change our hearts, change our nature, so that we may be obedient and actually have real genuine faith that moves us, that is a catalyst in our lives to walking into obedience with Christ. Now, it's important that we do not separate the two. It's not the Spirit and then sometimes the Word. It's always the Spirit and the Word. If we just separate it and then we just say just the Word, then we get, um, now, there's, it's, nowadays there are professors who have doctorates and biblical studies who are atheists, self-proclaimed atheists. Or you meet a Jew or a, a Muslim who has more of the Bible memorized than you do, yet, but yet does not worship Jesus as Lord. Or you get someone like a Jordan B. Peterson who can expound for hours and hours and hours on what the Bible is saying, but yet know nothing about the God of the Bible. If you separate the Spirit from the Word of God, that's what you get. If you just have the Word of God, it's not sufficient for salvation. And thus vice versa. The Spirit does not work without the Word of God. And to highlight this, um, uh, turn to Romans 10 real quick. Again, so I'm explaining how, because we don't have Christ, we have the Spirit and we have God's Word, and how they work together to accomplish God's will. Uh, so Romans 10, I'm going to start reading verse 11. It says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches of all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's... How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Here's what I'm getting at. No one has the work of the Spirit in their life and has no idea what the gospel is. They go hand in hand. The Spirit works alongside the reception of the gospel to change the nature and hearts of man to bring them into true and genuine salvation and faith in the Lord. Um, and, and thus vice versa. Um, and so, what, what we're getting at here is that, uh, first and foremost, saving faith, salvation belongs to the Lord. Because if you think about it, you read the Gospels, there are many people who uh, watched Jesus and his miracles, who heard his teaching, and yet denied him, and yet killed him, and yet crucified him. And it's like, why is that? It's because just because you can see Christ, and just because you can hear his teachings, doesn't mean that you actually truly see Christ, and you truly hear his teachings. What scripture testifies to is that every single man's heart is, is wicked, that there is such a, a darkness 
around the heart that even though people saw Christ, they didn't actually see Christ. And thus, Scripture is again portraying that there is no ability within man to save ourselves. That we cannot somehow conjure up faith or good works in order to choose God, but rather salvation through the power of the Spirit, alongside the work of the proclaimed Word of God and the gospel, the shared, the shared Word of God, saves people and brings salvation. It brings faith into the hearts of man. I'm trying to do this out notes. I'm trying to think of my next point. <laughs> um, and so, so that's, uh, that was um, hinting at on salvific faith and salvation. But Christian, it's also true for you and I here today. Um, sometimes, so we as a church love the Reformation and we love the theology of the Reformation, some more than others. But one of the hallmarks of the Reformation was by faith alone, by faith alone. And sometimes we can get misconfused to think that faith is the one thing that God needs from me and everything else comes from God. We somehow think that faith is something that is like deep within us. That if we just, in order to combat the sin or to be obedient, to overcome whatever it is or to persevere well, we think that like, oh, I just need to believe harder or I, I just need to schedule my life or, or we just, we fall into this misconception and think that faith can come from within us. And that is not what scripture teaches at all. Just as I said with the salvific faith, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's also that faith comes from the Lord. And thus, in our doubts, in our hardships, in our second guessing, in our um, wonderings, it's, we don't turn inward, but rather we know that Christ is the object of our faith. That, that in our faith, we, we look to Christ and upon Him, and faith in Him, we have salvation. But Christ is not just the object of our faith, He's also the source of our faith. That if when we doubt and when we struggle, and just as the disciples do here, we do not look inwardly to then like figure it out and to bring ourselves out of it. But rather, we must again look outwardly as in all things and look to Christ. And we must echo the words of the prayer of, of Mark 9 when it says, I have faith, help my unbelief. We, we don't, again, we don't stir inward, but as Christ says, come, touch me, feel me, then you will have faith. As they look and they experience and encounter Christ, that is also the solution to our doubting. That is also the solution to our second guessing. It's not to look inward and see our lives or how well it's going or how we feel or what our circumstances are, but rather is to look to Christ. And thus, when complete and utter darkness comes our way, when we find ourselves in the valley of dry bones and the shadow of the night, when everything hurts, nothing's going right, and we are tempted to despair, that's where we can have faith and Christ can bring faith so that there is light within us, so that we may persevere, so we may stand the test of time. So faith, again, uh, the, the solution to doubt is to plead and beg with the Lord for faith. And, that, and we should have an account in light of our passage that Christ would be very gracious and very, very eager and willing to answer our prayers in that. God desires a people, a, a purified bride, a people that, who have trust and belief that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. Um, oh, just had it. 
What's the fruit of this? There it is. Um, why? why? Why does Christ desire for his people to have faith? What, what, what's the benefit of this? Why, why does Christ care so much about our faith? You, like, it's, why does he care? Like, if we have saving faith and get us in the door, then why does he care more about if we trust him more or grow in him more? Um, the, the first one that I'd like to propose is perseverance is that God desires to protect his people. Because what kind of God would he be if he wasn't for his people, if he didn't try to help his people? God knows our lives. He knows what lies ahead and for tomorrow. So that's why we rightfully say in Matthew, do not worry for tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And so thus he knows what um, is behind the next door, if you will, or, or coming in the next day. And he knows how we struggle. He knows our frame. He knows where we are inclined to, to doubt and to give into. And, but he also knows, again, what we're going to encounter, what kind of death or loss or hardship or suffering that we may go through. And so God desires to protect his people by testing and providing their faith. Um, as it says, I, I believe in First Peter, that a faith that is tested and is proven true is more valuable than, than gold and silver and the most prized uh, jewels. So God desires to refine us, to test us, and to Prove our faith as true and genuine. And he knows that Satan is alive and well, that Satan is the deceiver. Satan tempts to take our thoughts and take what we believe and to twist them and say, did God really say? Or to offer a, a perverted theology or, or something that's wrong that will lead us astray and thus not give us true and real genuine faith. Because only faith in Christ excuse me, will last and stand the test of time. So Christ desires to protect his people, to have them to persevere, to hold them fast to the end of the age. And thus he desires to give them the faith that will accomplish just that. But secondly, also, God desires to give his people confidence. And confidence comes through your faith in God. If we take the disciples here, just for example, what are the disciples doing? They are hidden away. They are fearful of the Jews. We could rightfully say, as J.C. Rowell does in his commentary, that the disciples here are complete and utter cowards. That rather than suffer with Christ, they abandon Christ. Rather than go through obedience to Christ, they tap out and leave him. But obviously something happens. Something takes place. Because although this is where we find the disciples today in our preaching... Church history tells us that the disciples would never do this again. And in fact, God would do such a work both here and through the Holy Spirit when it is uh, casted down on Pentecost, that the disciples would rather die than deny Christ again. And in fact, that's exactly what they do. Church history tells us that every single disciple died for their faith. And in fact, they're not alone. Um, I, I read an article researching this. Since the days of Jesus, there's estimated estimated 70 million Christians who have been martyred. Not 70 million Christians who have been killed or, or died, but who have been murdered for their faith. And you can think about how many of them had the opportunity to, to on facing their deathbed, facing their whatever the execution was, to deny Christ. They, they offer, you know, serve Caesar, worship Muhammad, do something, deny Christ, and then you will live. And yet, 70 million didn't. And so, Christian, I would propose, just as the disciples, um, you know, wrongfully expect doom from Christ, 
Just as the disciples here are uh, doubt, they doubt the Lord. And just as they are here cowards, I would propose that we are not much better. Um, if we're being honest with ourselves, we are probably far more cowardly than we would like to admit. Um, if we think about our workplaces and when someone takes the Lord's names in vain or someone's talking about God in a way that is not right or accurate, we, we're afraid to speak up and to correct or to stand faithful or to uh, defend our God or you know, in our family and Thanksgiving and Christmas. We don't want to be the black sheep. We don't want to be that Jesus freak. We don't want to talk about the gospel to people who we know desperately need it. Or a good litmus test is when you're at a coffee shop and you're meeting with someone. Are you unashamed of the gospel? Or when you're talking about God's truths and you're talking about LGBTQ people or, or abortion, do, do you, when does your voice drop? It's, you'll probably find, like myself, it's like we are very cowardly. But yet there's hope for us. There is hope for us. That what the Spirit did to assure the disciples and giving them confidence in the faith in their Lord instilled with them that they stood before kings and tyrants and nations and said, I will serve no other but Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and thus suffer the consequences for that. And likewise, there's hope for us, Christian, that God's desire is for us to have faith in him. And again, this entire passage is him laboring to show that, is that he will do what it takes to build a work within you, to see it through to completion, so that you can stand, as Paul does, unashamed of the gospel, that your life will truly be defined by Christ and his finished work on the cross. Um, but not only does he give us faith in, for that reason, or in this passage, assurance of that, um, the last observation is uh, verse 41. It says, While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, uh, yeah, broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Um, so this passage... Uh, people fall on both ends of uh, danger, let's say. Some people make too much out of this passage. Some people make too little or just completely think there's a deeper underlying meaning in this. The physical resurrection and the glorification of Christ is a key doctrine to the Christian faith, one that is worth dividing over. And many people would take a pass. Well, I just, there have been many people in church history, that's a better way to say it, who have taken this and say, oh, it wasn't really Christ. It was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. It's a new body. It's not Christ's old body. And, and they, they twist it to say something that it's not saying. And so it's important, as many of you who are members have memorized the Apostles' Creed, we, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And thus, this is one of the passages, as well as 1 Corinthians 15 and other places, that depict that Christ, it was a real physical resurrection. And it was Christ's actual body that was then glorified. But also some Christians go too far and they say, oh, look, Christ was able to um, walk through walls. So that means we'll be able to walk through walls. And he wasn't, and they just, maybe that's true, but that's not what the passage is getting at. Uh, on the other side of eternity, I would love to walk through walls. But it's, that's not what's <laughs> getting at. So some people will take this and like stretch it to like say something that they want to say or mean something out of it that they don't necessarily want to mean. Um, an interesting observation when I, I was thinking about this is like, we as a church are, are very young. And so a glorified body is just kind of like, oh yeah, that, that sounds awesome. But being youthful, um, we have, let's say, a great capacity for foolish sins and youthful sins. And so, as speaking to a majority young church, 
our um, desire to, to long for and to be excited about a new glorified body is that we will receive a body that cannot sin. That right now, the sin that we struggle with the most and we feel the most enslaved to and that we fall into, our motivation to like get out of this body and receive that body is that that body will be sinless. Where for those who are here tonight who are a little older, have a little more gray hairs or no hairs, um, <laughs> the, they have been walking with the Lord longer. And so in God's grace, they have been more sanctified. There have been uh, sinful flesh that has been put off, that has been combated, that has been put down. But for them, their bodies not work as, it, as they used to. Um, they can't do the things that they used to be able to do or be unlimited. And so there, there's a, I'm getting at is there's, there's a twofold like, longing for the physical resurrection, the glorification of the body. Is both that our bodies are dying, whether we believe it or not, whether we feel it or not, and that's the temptation of the youthful, the youthful ones of us, is that we feel like we will never die, and thus we will go and do stupid things that we probably shouldn't do. Um, so there's the expectation of like we will receive a body that is glorified, that can run forever, that does not grow weary, does not need to rest. But then there's also the other component of like the sin that we struggle with, the sin that weighs us down, the sin that we fall into day after day after day will also be removed. And so thus we should um, probably uh, marvel at this passage more than what we do. That like Christ is glorified and thus what is true for him is also true for us. And in faith, we will take hold of that. And so um, in, in conclusion, you can see how the... Uh, what, what I like to, how I kind of think about it is disciples here react and Jesus responds. And how do disciples react and their sin and their disobedience and their abandonment and their doubt is very similar to how we react when stuff like this happens in our own lives. However, how Jesus responds again and again and again in this passage is also in faith, we have great assurance that that's also how Jesus responds to us and deals with us. And so thus, Christian, take heart that we serve an infinite God of mercy who loves and cares about us more than we could far ever imagine and thus desires to instill with us a faith that will see the end of time. Um, will you please join me in prayer? Almighty God, we just praise you, O Lord, for this time, how joyful it is to be the fellowship of the saints, O God, to come together and to worship you. We thank you for your word, Lord, that has preserved uh, through the test of time, 2,000 years later, Lord, you have preserved this word to encourage us here today, O God. Lord, we just beg of you for your forgiveness, O God, that you would forgive us, for we fall oh so short of your standard. We lack so much faith. We we doubt, we just don't believe you. We don't live in light of your promises. We don't think they could be for us. We deem ourselves unworthy, unlovable, just untouchable by you, O oh God. But yet, Lord, you say, though your sins are red as scarlet, you will make them white as snow. So, Father, give us faith today to believe that, to believe all of your promises that are for us, that are yes and amen in Christ. That, God, you, at the right hand of the Father, Christ, are interceding on our behalf, and the Holy Spirit is alive and well within us, changing our hearts, renewing our minds, aligning our desires, our hopes, our ambitions, our dreams, our wants, our needs, our everything 
in accordance with Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to continue in worship. Let us sing the greatest and loudest praises to your name for what Christ has done and for what Christ is doing in our lives even now today. To your holy name, ask and pray all these things. Amen.